One of the most challenging aspects of counseling patients about the possibility of receiving adjuvant systemic therapy is to offer the patient candid and realistic estimates of the benefits of treatment. In recent years, oncologists have come to depend on the adjuvant online website developed by Dr. Peter Ravden to obtain these numbers. This fascinating computer model takes several simple variables and generates a set of projected statistics on the impact of systemic therapy on relapse rate and mortality. I met with Dr. Ravden to obtain an update on his work and also to learn how new genomic assays like the Oncotype DX fit into the equation. Dr. Ravden began by commenting on the key issue of predicting which patients will benefit from chemotherapy. What we'd really like to do is be able to predict which patients are the ones that are going to get the benefit. And we know that not everybody gets the average benefit. We know that from neoadjuvant therapy. Some patients are big winners and some patients aren't big winners. And that's almost certainly true for micrometastatic disease as well. So there are a number of strategies now that really look interesting in terms of being able to predict the benefit of chemotherapy. I think the one that's most widely thought about at the moment is the Oncotype DX test. Uh, Of course, there's recent publication in the JCO of a study in which they looked at the ability of that test to predict chemosensitivity to CMF. And that was in collaboration with the NSVP. And what they found was that if you had a very low recurrence score, those tumors actually appeared not to benefit from chemotherapy, and that the patients who had high recurrence scores were at high risk for recurrence, and nature's kind, and actually set things up. So those are the ones who are clearly substantial winners by getting adjuvant CMF. In that trial, the risk of distant recurrence in 10 years was roughly 30%. And for those patients that received CMF and had the high recurrence scores, that was reduced to somewhere around 12%. So over 50% of the distant recurrences were prevented by CMF in those patients. Now, for the patients with low recurrence scores, the risk of recurrence was somewhere around 4%. And it was a similar number, irrespective of whether or not they received CMF. So there didn't appear to be benefit in that group. Now, one thing that's important to say, and that is that the crucial statistical test, and that is to look for what's called interaction between therapy. And that's how sure are you really that you're really seeing a difference in responsiveness between the high-risk and the low-risk patients. And the test for an interaction actually was statistically significant. The test did seem to be predicting which patients would particularly benefit from the therapy. What are the situations clinically where you think the Oncotype DX can be most useful? I think that this test is designed to be used and basically was developed in patients who were node-negative estrogen receptor positive who were receiving tamoxifen as a baseline therapy. So that's the patient population that is the target population for the test. Now, the other thing to say is that, like any test, it's a test that should be used when the result might affect the decision. And I think that for most of us, irrespective of what a recurrence score showed, if the patient had a T3 tumor, we simply wouldn't be satisfied with the test. And I think that there are probably oversimplifications of looking at the test, and that is to think of it as completely independent of other information. Actually, one of the things that's interesting that we've done in collaboration with the NSABP is actually look at adjuvant online's predictions versus the Oncotype DX predictions. 
They were both strong predictions. The Oncotype DX predictions were a little bit better, but not really statistically better. And interestingly, when you put them in a multivariate analysis, both were still predictive, telling you these 16 genes don't totally describe everything that you might find by looking at the tumor by classic pathology. And that doesn't surprise me, incidentally. I think that, for instance, tumor size, I would expect to be somewhat independent. We know that the molecular signature doesn't change much as the tumor gets bigger once it's gotten to a macroscopic size. And so to some extent, the tumor size is a clock. How long has it been there? So that it would make sense that a bigger tumor, even if it had a recurrence score estimate that looked favorable, might not be quite as favorable as we view it at the moment. Can you talk a little bit more about what the test actually is and why it's different in terms of the way it was developed? I think the test is brilliantly conceived because it is something that really cuts to the quick I'm tired of looking at these huge 40,000 gene arrays. It takes me back to the whole reason why we put together Adjuvant Online. It's nice to be impressed by complexity, but for those of us who are sitting in offices, we want to know what to do. We know that all 40,000 genes aren't important. There's lots of studies that show that. And so we'd like to know what subset of genes might help. And the developers of the Oncotype DX test went through a process of gene selection, but they didn't actually use all 40,000 genes. They used genes that seemed to make sense to them, genes that were involved in proliferation, genes that were involved in the estrogen receptor and related pathways, genes that were related to HER2 and related pathways, genes that were involved in invasiveness of tumors. And they winnowed a set of genes down of, I think it was around 200, down to the 16 that they now use. So one might predict that those genes would be good genes for evaluating. The next part of what they did was, I think, truly the path to their success. And that is, rather than look at small data sets, we so often see promising results to be developed in the future from, they went right to a major cooperative group data bank the NSABP, that had long-term follow-up on patients that had been randomized into trials. That allows you to basically have a subset of patients who were treated with something and not treated with something. And so you could actually look not only at prognosis, but you could also look at whether or not the test seemed to predict treatment effect. They've done now a series of papers based on NSABP B14 and NSABP B20, one of them looking at whether or not tamoxifen improved outcome, which of course it does, and the other study looking at whether or not if you're taking tamoxifen, if CMF improves outcome. So that's how they develop the test, and the test is actually right now marketed with a claim that it predicts prognosis. But I would not be surprised on the basis of the publication that they start actually marketing it with the claim that it also predicts the effectiveness of chemotherapy. There's one really important caveat, or a couple here, about the test. We don't use CMF very much today. And there's ongoing studies looking at whether or not it's as good a predictor for other therapies. I think it will be, but I'm going to be reassured when those results become available. The other thing to say is that it's really been developed in patients who were treated with tamoxifen, because, of course, those are the patients that that was the therapy we were using 10 years ago. And I've heard that they're working in collaboration with some of the groups that have tested aromatase inhibitors to look at the predictive ability for who benefits from aromatase inhibitors. I would expect that to be similar to tamoxifen, but there might be differences, and that could be interesting. 
Let's switch over to the other issue that you alluded to, which is the hormonal therapy and the fact that now we're seeing a shift in the selection of hormonal therapy, mainly in postmenopausal patients. Can you sort of describe where we are with that right now? Where we are is really at a transition point that's going to make it more and more clear that aromatase inhibitors are the way to go. The reason why we're at a transition point is that up until this time, we've just had improvements in disease-free survival. And now individual trials and meta-analyses of trials are showing that this is converting into overall survival benefit. So I think that's going to convince skeptics, whatever the downsides, and I think that there are actually less downsides to aromatase inhibitors than tamoxifen, whatever the downsides are of aromatase inhibitors, if they confer survival benefit, most of us would be absolutely convinced. And in fact, I think that for the most part, the convincing has already occurred. This is just a follow-on thing that strengthens that. The major guideline agencies in the U.S. now basically say in their guidelines that adjuvant therapy for postmenopausal ER-positive women should include an aromatase inhibitor. It doesn't actually say a point that we're still waiting for clinical trial results, and that is, is it best to start with an aromatase inhibitor and to give five years of an aromatase inhibitor, or is it best to, say, start with tamoxifen and then switch to an aromatase inhibitor? There are lots of open questions, by the way. It could be there's a trial that's going to address, maybe you should start with an aromatase inhibitor and switch to tamoxifen. The other question I think that occurs to all of us is the follow-on question to the one that we faced 10 years ago with tamoxifen, which was, well, if five years is good, maybe 10 years is better. And we don't have any data yet about that, but there are ongoing clinical trials looking at what to do after five years of hormonal therapy that includes an aromatase inhibitor. Should you continue the aromatase inhibitor long-term? Can you talk a little bit about why aromatase inhibitors cannot be used in premenopausal patients without ovarian suppression? Basically, what happens if you try to suppress estrogen production in a premenopausal woman is the gonadotrophin levels will go up, and you hyperdrive the ovaries to attempt to make extra estrogen. So as I understand it, it's very difficult to suppress, essentially impossible to suppress functioning ovaries. That's the reason why aromatase inhibitors are not used in premenopausal women. I'm not aware of any trials that have looked at this in any depth in metastatic disease. Actually, there's an interesting possibility in metastatic disease and that is that some tumors appear to have a lot of aromatase and make their own estrogen. And so it's possible that some tumors actually drive themselves. But all of that's theoretical possibility. And I think that we know that tamoxifen works well in premenopausal women. There's no reason to fool around with an unproven possibility. And so aromatase inhibitors are not recommended for premenopausal women. Now, what about the premenopausal woman who receives chemotherapy and ceases menstruation after chemotherapy? Yeah, this is the one place where, you know, is it practical matter? It makes everybody uneasy. Most of us have been burned in the early days of adjuvant therapy with aromatase inhibitors with women who started menstruating after they were apparently in menopause. So most of us are very cautious about the use of aromatase inhibitors. The younger the woman, the more likely she's going to restart menstruation, the less likely an aromatase inhibitor is a good idea. From my point of view, particularly when I know that the trials in which people have started with tamoxifen and switched to aromatase inhibitors, 
those women have done well with a late institution of an aromatase inhibitor. I never start a woman who is menstruating before she gets chemotherapy, then becomes postmenopausal. I never start a woman like that, an aromatase inhibitor. I always give her tamoxifen. Then there's always the problem of how can you even be sure after two or three years that she's truly postmenopausal. Tamoxifen itself can interfere, give you false gonadotrophin levels. You can be fooled even looking with endocrinologic tests. But I think if you're going to switch a woman from tamoxifen to an aromatase inhibitor and there's any question in your mind about whether or not she might be premenopausal, one thing to remember is people can be cycling and have significant estrogen levels and yet not be menstruating essentially having anovulatory cycles. And so it's very important in such a woman, first of all, to confirm that she's got postmenopausal levels. And then what I would do is reconfirm it some months later and perhaps a couple times during that first year. Because nothing feels worse than having a woman start menstruating when you're giving her an aromatase inhibitor because you realize that from that point and probably for months previously, she hasn't been getting any effective adjuvant endocrine therapy. Now, based on the fact that most people have concluded that AIs are superior in postmenopausal women, sort of the natural thought has been, well, let's take a premenopausal woman and make her postmenopausal woman and then give the best therapy for postmenopausal woman. And the strategy of ovarian suppression and ablation plus an AI is currently being studied in clinical trials. What are your thoughts about that? And do you think that there's a role for that right now in any kind of clinical situation in a non-protocol setting? That's one of those questions where we really don't have solid information, and we're within a couple of years of getting such information from some of the ongoing trials. Actually, the Europeans have some trials that are going to give us some information, and there's some international trials looking at this. I'm very ambivalent about what the right answer is to this, partly because it isn't absolutely clear that doubly dropping estrogen levels is going to actually result in more benefit. It's certainly going to result in more risk, by the way, because you're going to have even lower estrogen levels, and you're going to have, therefore, more issue with osteoporosis and things like that. That the European studies that are looking at this have already shown. The women that get both ovarian suppression and also an aromatase inhibitor, those are the women that really had dramatic bone loss. What about the role of HER2 positivity in selecting hormonal therapy? And in a patient, for example, premenopausal patient, multiple positive nodes, HER2-positive tumor. She's going to get chemotherapy and trastuzumab, but what about, again, the strategy of maybe being more aggressive and trying to use an AI with an ovarian suppression? What do we know about HER2 in response to hormonal therapy? I'll tell you, the picture here is really mixed. For instance, in some of the aromatase inhibitor trials, adjuvant trials, the big study is the only one And this is a trial that randomized patients between tamoxifen and letrozole. And they do have results. They're short-term results. But letrozole was better than tamoxifen in both HER2-positive and HER2-negative patients. So there have been some neoadjuvant studies that suggested that maybe patients who are too positive were the ones that particularly benefited by getting aromatase inhibitors. But right now, the strongest trial results that we have are that we can't pick an aromatase inhibitor over tamoxifen or is particularly beneficial over tamoxifen on the basis of HER2. Now, that's being looked at in the ATAC trial, which is in nastrozole versus tamoxifen. And I think a lot of us are waiting for that result Now, the other question that you've maybe alluded to with a very high-risk woman, and would you pull out all the stops, that's the one situation where I might be tempted to. 
And that is, you're looking at a woman, she's quite young, and say she's less than 30. You know that that woman is almost certainly going to start menstruating again. Ovarian suppression is probably an important part of her therapy. And then whether or not she would benefit by an additional tamoxifen or an aromatase inhibitor is something that right now is essentially a clinical trial question. But I think that a lot of us, for very high-risk women who are very young, actually tend to err on the side of, you know, that's the patient who we might use combined therapy off-study. What about the side effects and toxicities of AIs versus tamoxifen? Where are we right now in terms of understanding that? Where we are is basically that AI profiles look better than tamoxifen. If you look consistently across studies, what you see is that the dropout rate people that just stopped, the placebo-controlled studies, there are always more patients on the tamoxifen arm than the AI arm. That tells you right away that the tolerability of the drug is at least as good as tamoxifen. It's not a dramatic difference, but it always is in favor of the AI. I think, to me, that's the most deeply speaking thing, and that we can all talk about things like the arthralgias and that kind of thing. And to be frank about it, the number of arthralgias you see depends on how hard you look. And so they're very different estimates from different trials. So for me, the real question is, did the patient have to stop the medication because they just didn't tolerate? And there's no evidence whatsoever that AIs are harder to tolerate on average. Now, that being said, there's absolutely no doubt that there are some patients for both tamoxifen and for AIs who do have intolerable side effects to that agent. And there are some patients who develop very severe arthralgias. And so there were some patients that stopped for that reason. It can't be said that an AI has such low toxicity that for every single patient, it would be the preferred therapy, particularly given the fact that people have to take it for years. Can you contrast the more serious side effects of the two drugs and how you sort of see it? The more serious side effects for tamoxifen, there are increased risk of thrombotic events and also endometrial cancer. Neither of those are an issue with an aromatase inhibitor. Now, tamoxifen has a benefit, and that is that it seems to help hold bone mass. And that's actually just the opposite effect of aromatase inhibitors. Aromatase inhibitors tend to accelerate bone loss. And in every single trial that you look, there's always a trend, not a dramatic trend, but it's about a one-third increase in the number of fractures that patients experience. And actually, it's well documented in the trials that people taking aromatase inhibitors are losing bone mass faster than the other group. There's growing evidence that the use of bisphosphonates can block that effect. I guess one thing about all the original trials, these first generation of AI adjuvant trials, is that None of them really monitor bone density or did any intervention, which is sort of what's being done right now in practice. Right. It's interesting what happens when you move from the metastatic arena into the adjuvant arena, because in the metastatic arena, patients have a lot of concurrent problems. And so effects that are rare or not severe, very rarely severe, are usually not recognized. For instance, we didn't recognize the issue with endometrial cancer for tamoxifen for more than a decade after using it. So for aromatase inhibitors, the first trials, it wasn't an issue in the metastatic disease trials, nor were the arthralgias, for that matter, and then it was only recognized in the adjuvant arena. So I think the bottom line is the one really downside of aromatase inhibitors is the issue of bone health, and we have two good things to do about that. I think every patient that goes on aromatase inhibitor, the guideline committees all suggest that you get a baseline bone mineral density. 
then you consider for patients who have any osteopenia that you start them on some kind of bisphosphonate. What about the issue of selection of aromatasin here? We have three of those. How do you decide which one to use in which situation? We really don't have sufficient data to feel that one of them is better than the others. And if you take a look at the ASCO guidelines, I think what they say is that the clinicians favored but weren't dogmatic about the idea of using aromatase inhibitors in the scenario where they'd been used in clinical trials. So, for instance, the aromatase inhibitors that have been used as starting just at diagnosis are anastrozole and letrozole. All of the agents have been used, those two agents and also exomustane have been used as switching points after two to three years. And then the long-term issue of what happens after five years of tamoxifen has been most thoroughly looked at with letrozole. So they favored using it in those scenarios. That said, I think that clinicians use all the aromatase inhibitors pretty interchangeably. There's no major difference that's discernible at this point in toxicity profiles.